Good day. You're listening to European Buddha. Some weeks ago, we had the annual gathering meeting of the EBU in Brussels. And in one break, David Rycroft approached me and said, I know someone who is suitable for the podcast. And he mentioned you, Carla. So to give the audience a little bit of background, And hopefully you, not so much pressure when I'm reading this. Um, so Kala, you have been raised in a Buddhist context by a Buddhist mother. And you, um, as it is said, you can correct me, you recently completed a master's degree in Buddhist studies at the Rangjun Yeshe Institute in Nepal. And now, when you're not in India, you live in France where you are part of the environmental committee of Lerap Ling, a temple and retreat center of the Tibetan Buddhist Nyingma tradition. Is that right? Yes. <laughs> so uh, today we want to talk about a little bit about that, about your field of interest and how it is to be raised in a Buddhist context. Um, but first of all, how is it to be in India How is it for a Buddhist practitioner to be the birthplace? Yeah, it's actually really wonderful in a way. I mean, it is not the first time that I'm in the East. Actually, it was 10 years ago that I first came to Nepal. And I still remember how magical it was to first be in a place where Buddhism is just practiced everywhere and where you can just hear all the chants and see people walking around and visit all the holy places which are filled with so much history and then continuous blessing afterwards. So that really enchanted me and made me actually come back nearly every year to Nepal. I was lucky mm. that I was able to do that and then also do my master's there for like nearly three years. And yeah, through COVID, there was a bit of a break. We had to kind of rather quickly leave Nepal and I finished my master's online. And then for a few years, I haven't been back so now um, coming again, it feels like in a way reconnecting to that blessing or like to that atmosphere, but also seeing how it's not so much in the place only, but it can also be like I'm still the one experiencing it. Yeah, that could help me also to bridge the gap, not to idolize the East too much as kind of the Holy Land and so on, but to see mm -hmm. how I just in a way, use that inspiration to inspire my mind so that it can hold the blessing and that inspiration in all circumstances. So for me, it's kind of bringing these two worlds together because now I made the decision to live in Europe, live in France. So that's kind of has been a, a change. And you decided to study Buddhism also. So one could assume that from a very young age as a child, you were like almost a little Buddha and continued to do so. Uh, how is that? Was there um, something also in your childhood that you were interested in the Buddhist teachings or was that something that uh, grew on you when you got older eventually? Um, yeah, so I was raised in a Buddhist family or my mom is Buddhist or was Buddhist even before I was born. So like the atmosphere has always been around and like I didn't really... Like, I really liked the atmosphere. I didn't kind of reject it or so, and it, it brought me a lot. So um, I think in the first years, it was more like just kind of 
being in that atmosphere and soaking it up. And I didn't really understand the teaching so much. Um, but at some point when my English got better, then I could really understand what all these yeah, teachings are about, why so many people come there and spend so much time of their life um, in these, yeah, on retreats and following Buddhist teachings. So then at some point it really clicked, oh, wow, it's it's not only for like adults. Also. <laughs> it mm. could be actually for me because it's talking about my own mind, my own experience, like my own struggles. And it was really amazing actually that to find something outside that's so reflective of what's inside. Yeah. And since then it really like it got, there was a spark. And since then I kind of um, really dove into the path, so to say, and like listen to many teachings and yeah, try to spend as much time as I can Yeah, to learn more about this wisdom tradition and to see how I can actually bring a change in myself. Yeah, this uh, this resonates to me. Uh, I myself uh, have been sort of raised in a Buddhist context. And what I remember is not meditating. It was really the atmosphere. Maybe yeah. some, some incense or juniper that was uh, burning when I entered some kind of a room and some children blessing. So there was a Rinpoche uh, coming and uh, children were blessed. Uh, I remember that as a fun occasion. Were you but, part of kids being blessed? Yes. Oh, okay. I don't remember the blessing, but I remember um, having a nice chat with Kandro Rinpoche. She oh. was uh, doing the children blessing back in the day where I was lucky and uh, just remember having a nice talk with her. And these uh, kind of memories stick to my mind. And um, yeah, as you said, it was the atmosphere. But um, as, a, as a child, I didn't notice that. But I think I also uh, took up on that later in my life. And then I was getting more curious about what is meditating. I want to start to meditate and I want to find out what these uh, wisdom traditions are about. And what age was that for you? So I started philosophy and was always interested in also the uh, Buddhist philosophy, but really mm -hmm. starting to meditate. And I, I think for me, it was the beginning. It was at 25, so mm -hmm. almost 10 years ago. Yeah, really interesting to hear also your experience and how really the atmosphere is that what stays and um, yeah. also try to think back and see really like, yeah, what made the click or so. And it is really that, that in a way, like non-conceptual memory of something really beyond the ordinary that can be, yeah, showing the potential what we can be like. And that's also sometimes I remember that atmosphere also being embodied in the whole like group so not only like the teachers which were of course really amazing but also all the yeah other people around and how they were which is with each other and just a sense of harmony and yeah kind of humanity at its best <laughs> you get a glimpse of a very um yeah potent possibility that we can be open and kind to ourselves and i think as a child you really 
soak that in without knowing it. Mm. And I'm curious, uh, how is your meditation schedule these days? So when did you get to meditate and how was your journey on meditation? So in, in the Buddhist community I, I was in, or I, was, I grew up in, there is, um, we had a children program as well. So at first I really didn't like it <laughs> somehow. <laughs> I, I kind of thought it's like too watered down and I wanted to get the real thing. So mm -hmm. I, I went more to the main teaching, so to say, although I didn't get so much. And then at some point, like the, the whole kids program also came to the main teachings and then we had like an afternoon program so then i kind of could join both and it was also really nice to be in a group and like being being held in in that setting and like going over the teaching again so in that context we also had more like meditation instructions and like specifically for us as kids or teenagers and then we also i remember we practiced I started practicing more, like actually trying it. And I found it really hard. And I kind of thought, how, why does everybody say like meditation is so easy? Like it seemed just mm -hmm. everybody would be able to do it, but I wasn't because my mind was just like this crazy squirrel that was running around the whole time. Yes. I think that uh, the person who was leading that, um, that meditation session, he was actually talking about a squirrel and mm -hmm. something we don't actually have to make it like, not move at all, but we're just kind of watching it or so. And then slowly I got a bit more of a sense that it's not just trying to like just block out all thoughts, but it's still like um, a challenge, like to really stay present with whatever comes up and seeing it, but not getting lost in it. And then also not to fall into the trap of thinking, okay, I just suppress it. So then it's at least it's kind of calm and peace. So that's like, I mean, that tension still continues, but I've been like much more aware of it. And yeah, but I just doing it in all kinds of certain or different kinds of states of minds and times of the day and um, different settings. Then it's just at some point I realize a bit more, okay, it's not such a huge different thing than just being or so. It's like mm -hmm. not so much something to do and achieve, which is a so different state, which is like completely extraordinary, but becoming more and more natural to how mm -hmm. mind actually is naturally also. Yeah, this makes a lot of sense, I would say. Um, in that way, maybe meditation is not so far away from our everyday life in that sense. This is also some something we talk about sometimes in this podcast with other practitioners how to um combine meditation with everyday life and mm. uh, how is everyday life what situation do we have and often we have work or we have a family and uh, different demands and when do we find time to meditate and um, maybe sometimes uh, we can attune also the meditative um spirit to I don't know, washing dishes, caring for our children. Um, but it remains a, a a challenge. I think that's part of the practice, like first practicing in in kind of like a control setting and then slowly being able to bring it also in different circumstances. But I find it really, really yeah. hard. Yeah. And I think that makes somebody like a really good meditator or like 
accomplished person if they can really remember it in the most challenging situations. And when you were speaking before, I was thinking like, oh, it would be so interesting to get into, uh, to have an impression of the squirrel mind of the other person sitting next to you, who um, apparently is sitting still, but mm. the mind mind is maybe going wild, you don't know. But um, often we have our own minds and we think we are uh, the monkeys. But I think we share the monkey mind with everybody, probably. Yeah, yeah. that maybe they're not so different after all. Yeah, maybe maybe the content could be very different, but maybe the the speed. Maybe there's different kinds of people. Maybe some are like more like a crazy monkey, and some are like more a sleepy monkey, and, and yes, like yeah. all the monkeys in between. <laughs> it's yeah. quite funny. There are actually, really a lot of monkeys kind of just living around on the street, and it's quite an interesting to kind ah. of observe. <laughs> they just jump on things and start shaking them or like they they start like fighting out of the blue and mm -hmm. sometimes also quite cute how they have their baby on the back anyways this is a distraction <laughs> so yeah um so we were speaking about how it is uh to be raised in a buddhist context and um what would you say is the one of the key aspects of your Uh, interested in study Buddhism. So why I decided to actually study Buddhism in a university mm -hmm. was that I first did a, a bachelor degree in um, like psychology and philosophy with the aim to really like see how the Western tradition understands the mind and like kind of coming to the topic of the mind and experience from that angle. And it was interesting in one way, but I kind of felt There, there could be so much more to know about the mind, which has, is kind of left as a question mark in, in the Western tradition, at least how I, in my opinion. And I thought, okay, I, I know that the Buddhist teachings are for me, they're the truth. So I know that if I go more into that, I will go, I will come closer to an understanding of mind that I know is in the right direction. So then I thought, okay, why not really take the time to study that tradition more thoroughly? Um, so then that's why I decided to do this master's in Buddhist studies. Mm -hmm. And then when it came to choosing um, a topic for, for my master's thesis, it was really difficult. <laughs> I often have, I'm interested in so many things and then to actually nail down one is quite difficult. So then I just thought, okay, what would be really fun to do? And then... Um, I decided to focus on the practice that I've been practicing for a long time and I still practice at the moment, which are the preliminary practices. So they're part of the Vajrayana tradition, like the foundational practices for engaging um, like in so-called main practices, although actually our tradition says the preliminary practices are the main and the most important since they create the foundation. So then I wanted to see how these practices that have been around for a really long time, like already in the Indian tradition, we can see like precursors of it. And then in Tibet, it has been formalized and then undergone different developments. And then how they come to the West and then that like me, a German <laughs> girl mm -hmm. is practicing them in English or sometimes in German or with a little bit of Tibetan. Then I was wondering how that whole, um, yeah, coming of Buddhism to the West is taking shape with one specific 
practice and then to see um, how is it working for people? Um, what are adaptations that are already happening in the way people practice? But also in the end, I looked at instruction manuals because then I had like a specific um, thing that I could compare. Mm -hmm. um, so I looked at one instruction manual for the preliminary practices called The Words of My Perfect Teacher by Patore Michi. So that was written in pre-communist Tibet. And then um, at one an instruction manual by Zongsa Kienzer Michi called Not for Happiness, which was a contemporary composition. So then I compared them and mm -hmm. looked at what has remained the same, what changed. And yeah. yeah. And did you, in your in your process, in your studies, uh, identify any like uh, challenges of um, Buddhism coming to the West or being practiced in the West? On the one side, we have a very old tradition in different parts uh, of the East. And then there's also, you could say, a translation process so that, as you said, a German girl could practice in the Nyingma tradition. Mm, yeah, so part of my... As part of my MA, I decided to actually interview people or send out a survey to specifically ask for challenges mm -hmm. that people are facing with these practices. So I got a whole list. Uh -huh. <laughs> I don't remember all the details, but it was super interesting to yeah. read everything. And I would like to go back to it and, and yeah, also see how we can address those challenges. And it was, of course, like coming from that it needs a lot of time commitment to complete the 100,000 accumulations of each of the sub-practices of the preliminary practices, like you have to do prostrations and accumulations of different prayers and mantras and visualization. So it's a process that actually takes really long, especially if you're working or studying. Yeah. So then people say, why can't we not just like, send not a shorter version or like, why do we have all these um, kind of, Buddhist iconography or ways of imagining that doesn't relate. And especially there's one practice called mandala offering, where you imagine all the different royal symbols that were connected to Indian kings. So for some people, it, it doesn't make any sense at all why you're offering an elephant or like a horse or like a <laughs> queen or a minister. <laughs> yeah. Uh -huh. All the different subcontinents, which are like an Indian cosmology. So of course, there's there's like many um challenges but then also i asked what works for people and that was also really interesting to see and some have really found a way how they can make it themselves and how they can own the practice in a way that's meaningful mm -hmm. and i think that's really the the way forward for any kind of adaptation or buddhism coming to the west or to one's own culture to really see how can i make this my own and that it feels Like it's it's full of meaning and the form I'm doing, I understand why I'm doing it. Maybe in the future, the forms would also change into, I don't know, maybe for the mandala offering, like offering bodyguards and limousines and um, <laughs> I don't know what. <laughs> But yeah. at least the moment to, to fill the maybe a little bit of foreign cultural forms with meaning and understand, okay, I'm offering everything that I could be attached to. Or... I'm wondering also for maybe young people, how they get into Buddhism. And um, sometimes I'm thinking, okay, 
we live in a time that is uh, more and more secular, you could say. So these uh, religions are not such a key role or figure in maybe young adults' lives. And Buddhism has an interesting uh, part in it. And at one point, it is a religion. And at one point, you could also say it's not that much of a religion in the sense that there is something to pray to and uh, it's more about uh, being a wise or a kind person, basically mm. a very human approach. And I'm wondering um, what uh, young uh, people are um, concerned of. And I think, for example, young people these days are very concerned about the environmental uh, crisis. And I found it very encouraging when um, the Kamapa um, addresses uh, these issues and says, yes, we have this problem as humanity, a collective challenge. And I think maybe in that way, um, Buddhism can share something of its understanding of, for example, interdependence or something like that. Yeah, I mean... There's many people, um, including me sometimes, who who facing what we now call like eco-anxiety or kind of seeing what is the future of this planet and what can we do given the scale of the problem, so to say. And then, yeah, to really see what can we find in our Buddhist traditions that I can, that can give us like a sense of meaning and hope and a sense that we can try our best to work <laughs> towards like alleviating the problem a little bit. And then also working with like generally accepting impermanence and that our world will not stay the same forever um, as we know it, like to balance both in a way and um, to work with some kind of acceptance of impermanence and and grief, but then also to see how can we mobilize the powers in ourselves. Um, and there I find it really inspiring the work of the Kamapa, his his book called Interconnected. Um, I didn't manage to actually read all of it, to be honest, but the parts that I've honed on and kind of went over it were really helpful. Mm-hmm. And his repeated message is, is quite a bold statement that he says, his message to actually care for the environment is is a dharma practice or could be actually the best dharma practice which is really mind blowing and mm. um because it's is really about seeing the world as the container where all beings are living so if if that creates a lot of suffering and problems then how can we how can beings actually be happy like it's it's, it's a first layer of yeah, creating happy circumstances and peace. And then, like, if there's no no earth, then how can we actually do any spiritual practice, so to say? Yeah, 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 exactly, yes. And the very uh, movement of breathing is actually an interconnected practice, breathing, the breath. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, and I think uh, you also mentioned a very important point that... Um, Maybe we can gather or we can share um, about these problems. 
So uh, you were part of the wisdom working for the Earth Forum, um, and you helped organizing it. It was also in Lera Bling, uh, and it was in 2022. And um, I'm not quite sure, but maybe it would be also interesting for the audience to know, um, was this a, a group initiative from young Buddhists, or how did this come together? Yeah, it's actually interesting how it was also like an example of interdependence, how this forum came about. So we had in our youth group from the Rigpa Sangha called Rigpa Shonu, we had a few of our friends who were really called to that topic, how we can combine environmentalism and Buddhism. And we organized some kind of like Zoom conference during lockdown time, inviting mm -hmm. different people and starting to brainstorm. And then we had this vision of, yeah, we want to bring this to the wider Buddhist world, or at least to our Rigpa world, so to say. And then within the Rigpa community, there were also different kinds of people who really wished for um, a conference on this topic in Lerabling. There have been many conferences in the past on different topics like mindfulness and um, I think also medicine or health or something like that. Yeah, these two kind of, what means two, but many different actors coming together formed then the team for that uh, forum and many young people helped making it happen. And mm -hmm. actually it will happen again next year. We just got the confirmation that um, on the 1st and 2nd of June, 2024, the second version of this forum will actually happen. So it is in France? So it's in the south of France, and it's one hour from Montpellier. Um, yeah. You can take a, a bus for one euro sixty from Montpellier to the, uh -huh. the next town and then the the last bit is a bit difficult to come up, but there will there there's also ways. Mm -hmm. So it's actually um, this temple called Lerabling. It's in a really beautiful natural scenery. So that's also yeah a beautiful place to do the forum or conference to talk about the connection of nature while actually being in connection at, at the same time. It's a different feeling than if you would do a forum in like a kind of university building in, in a big town. Mm -hmm. um, I really like that aspect as well, that we also had practical workshop of going into, into the forest or into the farm and so on. Mm. And uh, everybody can join, even with not a Buddhist background, what would you say? Yeah, it's completely open to the public or to like anyone. And um, that's the whole idea to make it accessible, especially also for people who have a background in environmentalism to then see, okay, how, what can we find in the Buddhist teachings that could help us in this endeavor? And, but also from, yeah, from any walks of life, that's the idea to make it mm -hmm. accessible. Wonderful. So we would put uh, some information about that in the episode description. And uh, so people can look that up. And uh, yeah, I'm thinking that was a wonderful tour through your life and your engagement, Carla. Um, do you have any last words to the audience? Now is your time to speak really wise words. <laughs> Yeah, just to say that I really in enjoyed this process. I was a little bit anxious to do the podcast, but then it's nice to just kind of talk and have a conversation. So I guess the wise words would be to kind of step out of one's comfort zone and just um, 
see what happens when you do a podcast. <laughs> so to other young people to mm. take this up and also dare to speak, even though you don't have like a PhD in whatever or um, are like kind of a, a great Buddhist leader or so, it is just a fun process. And maybe like that we can see or get a sense how Buddhism is practiced in Europe and how we can all become European Buddhas in future. <laughs> <laughs> wonderful, wonderful. Thank you very much, Carla. <laughs>